Hello, I'm Dr. Brian McDonough, and welcome to Primary Care Today on ReachMD. We're in Pasadena, California at the G2P conference that Prova Education is hosting. That's the Guidelines to Practice conference, and I'm speaking right now with a speaker who's going to be speaking in probably a half hour to the group, Dr. Gail Torkelson. She's a principal investigator at Andover Eye Associates, Andover, Massachusetts. She's here to talk today about common ocular conditions causes, treatments, and pitfalls for the primary care physician. But a couple of the things that I really wanted to address with you, and I know a lot of our primary care docs who are listening probably are concerned about, are common problems, dry eye and conjunctivitis. And let's start with dry eye. I don't know, maybe it's because I have always dealt with dry eyes, it seems, since the time I was 20 years old. I see it in patients a lot, and I'm very cognizant that it occurs. How common is it, and do you, you obviously see it a lot in your practice, but how many times do family docs see this type of an issue? Well, I think that once you start looking for dry eye disease, you'll find it in a lot of places. 10 to 15% of the U.S. population has dry eye disease, and um, I think that for a lot of primary care docs, maybe they're not asking about an ocular history, and patients are just sort of putting up with the symptoms of dry eye where they could really be helped if there were some directed questions towards asking about the ocular surface. Common questions that you can ask patients to decide if they might have dry eye is, you know, how do your eyes feel in windy conditions? How do your eyes feel when you're watching TV or working on the computer late at night? Those are common places where people with dry eye will have a lot of symptoms. The other thing is what I like to call the uh, car test. If they're a patient that always puts the has to put the heat on their feet and can never have it blowing at them when they're driving, that's often a sign of dry eye. That sounds like somebody like me. You're on a long drive, and all of a sudden you're like, i got to move this because it's starting to really dry things out. And the places you suggested, it's very, very true. So you got someone like me. They come into the office, you know, and they start talking to you or they're interviewing you and getting free advice. What, what do you say to them then about the types of treatments that are out there, the types of things you can do to make a difference, and why it occurs in the first place? Well, dry eye is probably one of the diseases that's multifactorial. There are a few different causes for dry eye. Some people will divide dry eye into an aqueous deficient dry eye as well as an evaporative dry eye. So the tear film is made up of an aqueous component, which comes from the lacrimal gland, an oil component, which comes from the mybobian glands in the lid, and a mucus component, which comes from the goblet cells in the conjunctiva. Aqueous deficient dry eye is very common. There are patients with Sjogren's syndrome that have an autoimmune disorder, which affects the lacrimal gland and the salivary gland. So dry mouth can be common in those patients. One way to ask them if they have a dry mouth is, you know, if you, if you eat a cracker, do you have trouble moistening the cracker to swallow it? That's the kind of question that will get at those symptoms. And those patients are often benefited very much from therapy. They have suffered a long time and need an adequate referral to an ophthalmologist to look at their eyes. In terms of the meibomian glands, there's often meibomian gland dysfunction. So if the meibomian glands are not functioning adequately, the oil layer of the tears is not adequate. So you can think of the oil layer on top of the tears as sort of the lid on the pot. 
of the ocular surface. So as we mature, the meibomian glands drop out. So there is an age-related component to that. It's actually somewhat more common in men, although overall dry eye is more common in postmenopausal women typically. But contact lens wearers often have meibomian gland dropout, which leads to a quick breakup time, meaning that their tear film is not doing an adequate job of protecting their ocular surface from drying. And for those patients, one of the ways that you can decide whether or not someone might have evaporative type of dry eye is they'll often have a fast blink rate. I mean, if you see someone who's blinking every second, so that's about 60 times a a minute, you know, chances are that person probably has dry eyes. People with dry eyes typically don't have a lot of conjunctival redness. It's more a subtle thing. Other causes of meibomian gland dysfunction include rosacea, which is associated with There's ocular rosacea as well as rosacea of the facial skin, so that's another thing for primary care docs. If they're treating someone for rosacea, they can ask, you know, how how do your eyes feel or how are you doing with your visual tasks? I'm Dr. Brian McDonough. You're listening to Primary Care Today on ReachMD. Our guest, Dr. Dale Torkelson, she's Principal Investigator, Andover Eye Associates, Andover, Massachusetts. She'll be lecturing shortly on common ocular conditions. We are in Pasadena. You can hear people enjoying their lunch and other people scalloping out their ice for their drinks. And we're hearing a lot of good background noise here. It's definitely a real interview at a setting where we're presenting information. And it's been very exciting. A lot of people talking about these different issues. I wanted to ask you about the whole contact lens thing. A lot of kids wear contact lenses, a lot of teenagers, uh, young adults. I remember growing up, I, I date myself, but I wore the hard contact lenses and wore them as a child. And I remember having terrible pain and keeping them in probably with a dry eye and not necessarily as a child knowing what's going on. How do we deal with those issues with dry eye in children and young adults who are wearing the, the semi-permeable and permeable contact lenses? Well, that's a terrific question, and that's an area of active scientific research right now. Contact lens intolerance is is the main reason that people drop out of wearing contact lenses. It's interesting in that the number of patients who begin to wear contact lenses almost equals the number of people who discontinue wearing contact lenses. Some of those features of contact lens intolerance include inability to maintain wearing contact lenses throughout the day. It's a hard, it's a hard situation. It has features in common with dry eye, but there's not really an adequate pharmacologic or contact lens product to address that issue right now. I remember distinctly stopping to wear them in medical school when I was in anatomy lab. I guess it was the formaldehyde or whatever, the dryness, it became unbearable. Mm-hmm. Well, that's, that's definitely true. In, in environmental conditions where there are, for example, diesel fuel is implicated in ocular allergies, it's definitely the case that the mucous membranes of the, of the eye and the conjunctiva are affected by environmental things. So it's not surprising that you had irritation in a setting where you were, you were, you know, you were breathing formaldehyde. There's an increase in ocular allergies, and one of the suspects is sort of the worsening air quality that occurs in a lot of cities, and that may have an effect on the ocular surface. It could influence both dry eye disease and ocular allergy, because both of those conditions are on the rise. Probably 
dry eye as, as you know, our U.S. population matures. And ocular allergy, whether it's due to increased urbanization, sort of the hygiene hypothesis, meaning that there's more allergies out there because people aren't being exposed mm -hmm. to as many infectious diseases in the past. These may be more anecdotal, but I've had a couple of patients recently who have described that their eyes swelled. They had swelling, itchy eyes, lasted for like 45 minutes, went away, and then didn't happen for two and a half weeks and happened again. Springtime cases, uh, any ideas about that? Is that an allergic-type phenomenon, you believe? Or? That sounds very typical of allergic conjunctivitis. Allergic conjunctivitis can be either seasonal allergic conjunctivitis, which involves the same pollens that cause allergic rhinitis. So you have the tree pollen, the grass pollen, ragweed, as well as perennial allergic conjunctivitis, which can involve allergen triggers such as dust mite, cats, actually cockroach in some, in some communities can be a, can be a source of, that, of uh, ocular allergies. You're listening to Primary Care Today on ReachMD. Our guest, Dr. Dale Torkelson, Dr. Gail Torkelson, and we are here in Pasadena, California at the G2P conference. We're talking about many eye issues. I want to keep going back to the dry eyes because there's so many areas that are important about it. What about treatments? I mean, I had somebody say recently, uh, a physician I was talking to, I'd recommend that your patients take Johnson's baby shampoo and just put it over the surface of, of the eyes on the, the eyelashes, and that can also be helpful if you do it over a period of time. I hadn't heard that one before. There seem to be a lot of treatments out there. Yeah, that, that sounds like a treatment for blepharitis, which is an inflammation of the lids. There's thought to be bacterial overgrowth. Even an organism such as Demodex has been implicated in that. And the Johnson's baby shampoo theory is that if you sort of scrub the lashes, you're scrubbing off some of the debris and sort of diminishing the bacterial load in the eye. You know, it's, it's, we live, obviously, with bacteria in the lid, but it's thought that an excess of them causes a problem for many people, whether it's quorum sensing or another phenomenon. One of the biggest treatments for dry eye is probably artificial tears, I would recommend starting artificial tears and telling people you really need to take these on a regular basis. Don't wait until your eyes are bothering you because there does seem to be a therapeutic effect for many people taking them on a regular basis, whether it's four times a day or twice a day. I generally recommend patients taking them four times a day, knowing that the compliance for the you know, third and fourth drop may not be <laughs> right. great. But, you know, the other, the other approved treatment to increase lacrimation is cyclosporin, which is useful for a percentage of the population. There still is, you know, an unmet need. There's been active research in this area, and, you know, there are a few medications that are under FDA review, so maybe we'll see some exciting news in the dry eye front. Yeah, because with the present cyclosporin products, they come in their little self-contained things, but you're only supposed to use a droplet or two in the morning, a droplet two or night, but... People, I, I know I've spoken to people who say they tend to use, they want to fill out the entire thing they bought, so they'll take four or five drops, then four or five drops. Is that harmful? It can be, because the drops are preservative-free. So if you've ever watched, as I have, people taking eye drops in the office, it's not uncommon, particularly in the age group that we're talking about for dry eye, for people to touch their lid with the eyedropper. 
And, you know, as as you probably know, that's a big source, potential source of contamination. As we so, just discussed, yeah. Yeah. So I, I wouldn't recommend it, but I know that, you know, the cost of medications is an issue for, for some folks. I will tell you what not to do. Don't use any of the over-counter products that have expired and use them. There is a reason there is an expiration date, and you will get bird uh, irritated eyes if you don't necessarily follow the directions of those things. Because when you're talking about your eyes, it's, it's essential that you follow these types of rules. We only have about a minute or so to go, and I know you're talking about a lot of things. I did want to talk about, ask you the question, is there anything else that you felt, you know, we talked about a lot, but that you wanted to add to this conversation that was important for our listeners? Well, I think one of the one of the things that's important is sort of the the treatment of bacterial conjunctivitis. I know that's another another area of talk, and we don't have too much time to go over that. But certainly, thinking about bacterial conjunctivitis in a in a thoughtful way, there's certainly a need for better sort of diagnostic tools to make a decision about what the underlying organism is, and just being sort of thoughtful in the topical antibiotic choices that we make for our patients. Yeah, it does seem like a lot of people go right away to the antibiotics. They may not give the the viral cause, I guess, as much time as it deserves in evaluating the patient. Well, it's it's challenging, actually, for the primary care physician because many schools and some workplaces will accept someone back after they've been on antibiotics for 24 hours. So, I mean, a, a primary care physician's hands are kind of tied And in the future, I hope that we have better diagnostic tools so that we can kind of go to the school boards and the workplaces and say, you know, this patient definitely has viral conjunctivitis. They don't need to be on any antibiotics. They're under our care, you know. Dr. Gail Torkelson, I want to thank you for joining us. You came from Boston. I came to Philadelphia. We meet in Pasadena to have this conversation, but it's really effective. And I thought you covered a lot of ground that I know a lot of our docs who are listening in practice will get a lot out of. So thank you so much for taking the time to join us. Thank you very much for inviting me. I'm Dr. Brian McDonough. You've been listening to Primary Care Today on ReachMD. And, again, you can download this as a podcast. You can get it on ReachMD.com any way you want to do it. Um, if you want to have an opportunity to hear our points in more detail, feel free. We have many programs in the Primary Care Today series and love to have you take advantage of them. Thanks again for listening.